Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Greg Peterson here, and welcome to the 306th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where we work together educating and inspiring you to become part of your food revolution. Growing plants that thrive in your yard is a lot easier than you think. It starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text SEEDS to 33444 or visit IWANTTOSAVESEEDS.COM and you'll receive our free webinar about why seeds matter, why saving them is easy, and how you can save your own. Today on our podcast, we have someone who knows quite a bit about native plants in the wild. We're talking with Mark Lewis about wildcrafting, foraging, and growing native. Wildcraft harvesting provides three quarters of his family's food supply on a daily basis. Additionally, Mark demonstrates sustainable foraging of 200 indigenous plants and 50 mushrooms at Phoenix area farmers markets, universities, schools, and regional conferences. Mark is now embarking on a new endeavor, the farm, growing 100 of the plants he wildcrafts, introducing them and their culinary potential to area chefs and sharing them and a library of First Nations language ethnobotanical materials with the Native American communities. Welcome to the show today, Mark. Are you ready to rock? Cool. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? I don't know how far back we want to go. My grandfather's grandfather used to do this back in the 1700s, and then my grandfather did this. Grandfather taught me, and so we're looking at a couple hundred years of experience. My direct experience is only about 45 years doing it, but basically it's an ongoing thing, and every day you learn new stuff, and especially with the global warming, which I suppose some people just don't really notice because they're in the city, but when you're out they're collecting stuff. I can tell you on a daily basis, things are changing and changing. So still learning every single day. But basically, my familiarity is with about actually 2000 different things. At the farmer's market, I can only share about 200, 250 of them. Wow. But there are about 2000 edible things you can get in our area and about 500 or so medicinal things. So Mark, what is foraging and wildcrafting? 
two terms that are actually pretty much synonymous. It just depends on who you talk to. Forging is the traditional name. Wildcrafting is the name that chefs have started using. And another one you'll hear that is sort of topical right now is field to table. Instead of farm to table, field to table is like wild things brought to the restaurant experience. So when one goes out wildcrafting, how does somebody get started and what are you looking for? As far as getting started, I would tell people, we've got this thing called the internet and then there's these other things called books. And there's an awful lot of resources if someone will just do some legwork Mm -hmm. and pay attention, for goodness sake. I know that a lot of people are thinking, well, if I go out, I'll be poisoned or I'll be killed or something like that. For me, that gets to be a little tiresome. I just think that the whole point of doing foraging, wildcrafting, is to familiarize yourself and bring it to your abilities. It's like a DIY thing. It's like a growing your garden thing. You decide that you want to do it Mm -hmm. and you take the steps to do it. It's nice to have a teacher who can take you out, but honest to goodness, there are so many resources now that you can start on your own. And then when you get into situations where you've used up everything that you've got, then you grab a hold of somebody. And there are a lot of people around. It's not just me. Pay attention. More than anything, what you pay attention to are the things Things that you succeed and excel at. And forging is like any other thing. It can be learned, obviously. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. Right, exactly. So when you're out foraging, what are you looking for? Let's say you're going to go out this afternoon. What are you going to go foraging for this afternoon? Right now, there are about 26... 27 mushrooms, there's between 20 and 30 plants that are are no-brainers. And then there are a couple hundred other things that might be out there. And then there's stuff we just don't expect and we're surprised by, partly because that happens anyway, and partly because, again, the global warming is changing the nature of what's happening out there. You really have to pick your battles when you're out there because you're going to find way more than you can possibly harvest. So we got mushrooms, and then there's other things. What are the other things that you'd be harvesting right now? Well, right now, acacia is probably, even if you're in the city, you're smelling this smell. Some people don't like the smell. It's sort of sweet. But acacia flowers are blooming like crazy right now. Amaranth is everywhere. Good old superfood from the grocery store that they charge you an arm and a leg for is weed here. And it's everywhere right now. And it's a really good crop this year, amaranth. There are barrel cacti. There are chilteppings. There's choya. Corn is coming in right now. Now, corn of course, is a domesticated crop. It doesn't really exist anywhere except where people are. But there are all kinds of corn, kota. There are grasses. So craft is growing wild? Yeah, this stuff is all out there. You just got to go get it. So you have to know where it is, obviously. You want to make sure that you are practicing sustainable harvesting. You don't want to take it just because you find it. But this year, everybody up north is saying that the pinons are bad. But I, I know places where the, we've got a lot of 
opiniones. We've got yucca, we've got the chapri beans, the sunflowers, prickly pear cactus. There are so many things that, mm-hmm. again, you've got to pick your battles. And then there are certain things that this season are the best for. For example, ephedra, which is also known in Chinese medicine that's called ma wang, but it's a plant that we have several species of, and fall is the best time to collect it, even though you could collect it year-round. Mm-hmm. This is when it's most potent and has the best flavors. So is that medicinal? It's medicinal, but it's also just tasty. Oh, nice. <laughs> a lot of these things are superfoods, and that's partly a factor of them not growing in soil that's exhausted. Basically, they're out there. They have to protect themselves against all kinds of insects, against competition from other plants, against the weather. And so they've got all these vitamins and minerals. That's what superfood means. They're full of chemicals. And these are chemicals that the plants are using to protect themselves, to reproduce, to attract things that will help them reproduce. Mm -hmm. These are the things that give food color. These are the things that give food flavor. And wild foods have them in spades way more than any kind of cultivated crop. One of the reasons is because the soil's so good. Soil's fantastic. Plus, they are actually defending themselves out in nature. It seems like every single domesticated crop, we always choose sweet and we choose high yield and we choose all the things that kind of dilute all of the protections and we keep them in a especially the commercial stuff with the pesticides we Uh keep them in a situation where they don't have to work really hard but the wild plants do if you've ever tasted chichiquilite it's a relative of a tomatillo or a wild tomatillo we have wild tomatillos here too when you taste these things you go, wait a minute, this is so much better, right? It's just like when you have a handcrafted tomato that you've taken great care and you only have a few of them and you you put lots of amendments in the soil and you did all these things to make it a real tomato. And then, of course, it's going to be different from one of the commercial tomatoes. Right. Well, wild plants are doing that, too, simply to survive. They've got to have those colors because those colors are the things that are going to keep away the bugs. They've got to have the chemistry that, in essence, is B12 to keep fungi away and things like that. All of our desert plants... They're full of calcium. They're full of vitamin D precursors. They're full of the vitamin B complex all the way from 1 through 12 and even something called 15, which I don't think any cultivated plants have anymore. Uh, They're just vitamin bombs. (laughs) I love that. Vitamin bombs. They have to be to survive. A lot of people don't realize that a lot of the foods they're already eating have their origins here in Native America. Turkeys actually came from Arizona and were traded down to Mexico. We've got a kind of corn, chavalote, which has pretty much shows up for the first time in the archaeological record here in the valley 4,100 years ago. Wow. We've got sunflowers. Sunflowers are native here and wouldn't have even survived the 1990s and the fungi outbreaks that happened all over the world if the USDA folks had not come back here and grabbed hold of the genetic diversity that's in our, not just our wild ones here in Arizona, but also the sunflowers that the 
Havasupa have been cultivating for like 9,000 years. Wow. Without these things, basically a lot of crops that we think of as everyday foods, mm -hmm. we wouldn't have. So when I'm going out and foraging, really all I'm doing is bringing in the crops of the future. That's why in what the names of one of my businesses, part of the name is the ancient future foods remembered. Here in the valley, we've got eight different species of a plant called wolfberry. Goji, which everybody knows is the superfood, is a kind of wolfberry that comes from China and another species from Tibet. But we have genetic diversity here that outstrips anything China's got. This is one of the places where these wolfberries probably got their start mm -hmm. here in the, the southwest. If you look at the greater southwest, then you go down as down into Mexico, down into Sonora, where the Hongkak, the Seri people live. They know about 20 different species down there. Wow. And basically, these plants that we could be growing, which I'm trying to convince other farmers to grow, and which is one of the things that I've got at the farm, uh, these wolfberry plants don't need irrigation. They don't need pesticides. They don't need a whole bunch of things that we typically associate with agriculture. And yet we would have a beautiful, wonderful crop that right now is worth a fortune. There are the species start, the wolfberries start now because of global warming about a month early in January. And they lockstep, it's leaves, flowers, fruit. Next one, leaves, flowers, fruit all the way from January all the way to the end of November. Hold on, they're producing multiple times? Well, these are different species, and then two of them are, in fact, producing a spring crop and a fall crop. So we call that, in, in the work that I do around fruit trees, we call that successive ripening. So what I heard you just say is that we have wolfberries, basically, that produce fruit, can I say, every month? from February to November? Well, from January to the end of November. And again, with no help from us. In fact, they really like it if we just leave them alone. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a plant here in the lower valley, so lower elevations. It's called, by a variety of names, but gray thorn is one of them, and another one is lope bush. And this is, it's zizophus. And if the listeners know in Asian food and Arabic food, there's something called zizophus, which is known as a jujube or a jujube. Oh, yes. Well, this is a very, very close relative of that, and we have it growing here in the valley, and it absolutely has to be left alone. It has to be out in the extremely hot sun. Most of the year it has no leaves. It looks like a bunch of dead sticks. But when it has fruit, it is covered with these purple berries and delicious, filled with all kinds of vitamins. And we could go just down the list of trace minerals like boron and copper and a whole bunch of stuff you need for your skin and your hair and your nails, but it's also just good. It just tastes good. And real good beverage, we could be growing it. The farmers could be growing it on the land that they can't get anything to grow. Mm. We have a grass here. Actually, it's the, the Cocopa, the Cocopa people down south, uh, southwest near Yuma. They grow a grass called Nipa. Nipa is most closely related to sorghum, but it's got a vitamin profile like wheat. So here's this grass. 
and they used to have thousands and thousands of acres of it. And what did we do? We pulled the plug on the Colorado River so that their land dried up to the point where almost nothing could grow. All right, but this plant, they've hung on to this plant, Nupah, because Nupah will grow in soil that is up to 78% salt. Oh my gosh. Now, what does this mean? This means you can grow it in seawater. This means you can grow it in the fields down around, for example, Eloy that have been ruined by bad irrigation practices so that it's salinated, right? Uh-huh. You can grow it there. Here is a plant for the future. This is an ancient plant that provided a mainstay, and it could be something for the future. So we're starting to see that one and another one called panicum, panic grass, mm-hmm. most closely related to corn, but it looks like grass. Well, nice. These are things that are being grown commercially in places like Mexico and the Middle East. But people here, where it comes from, no no acknowledgement of what it is or what we could do with it. So that's what the farm is for. Great. Tell me about the farm. Where is it and what are you growing? Well, it's not really going to be available for everybody because I don't want everything to be trampled. But uh-huh. just so you know, it is about a year in the making now. The plants are starting to establish themselves. It's actually in the middle of Phoenix. There are lots of places in Phoenix where development just jumped over, I guess. Oh, yeah. It's not too far from the airport. I'll leave it at that. The idea for the farm is to take these plants that I've been talking about at the farmer's markets and at the colleges. And when I went to Vildmod over in Denmark, down to the Autonautam Reservation, to show people how you could cook with these babies, I'm just going to try right now to get the chefs involved. And we'll bring about 12 people at a time over, and it'll be a way for chefs to see the food, see the plant, see the food learn how to prepare, learn how to cook, and then hopefully they will run with it at that point. Will you be supplying them? Well, I'm hoping I won't have to do that. I'm hoping this is the spark that will get other people started because at the farmer's market, I can see people are interested, but very few people seem inclined to, well, they seem disinclined to go do the foraging, let alone just have the stuff be handed to them. Right. There are times when I have brought the samples and everybody loves eating up the sample, but it has not translated since I've been doing it in 2012. It has not really translated into people going out and foraging on their own or joining me when I'm foraging. I do a saguaro camp and people say it's too hot. And I'm thinking, well, I'm not really sure how I can alleviate that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The time you need to do it is when the fruit's available, which is in the middle of summer. But this will be a way to reintroduce the foods to the tribes. There are plenty of people on the reservations that have continued using these things. So it's nothing new for them, but it'll be a way to basically show people here are the uses. And that's another thing. Different tribes have been doing different things with these plants. Of course. It's a way to learn from each other, use the library that I've built up, come out, see the plants, cook with them, learn how to dry them, learn how to turn them into food like people used to. So it sounds to me like you and I have the same problem in convincing people to get motivated out there. For me, it's getting them to grow their own food because it takes some action to do that. And for you, it's getting them to go out and forage for food. Again, it takes some action and really some learning. The 
the other thing we're up against is all this stupid fear. I don't know when it started. I mean, when I was a little kid, my mom would look at people and say, well, they're eating it. They're not dead. Uh-huh. Go ahead and eat it, right? But now the thing I get asked over and over again at the market when people are looking at things is, well, how do you know it's safe? And I say, well, I've been eating it for like 42 years. <laughs> yeah. But how do you know it's safe? Here I am. <laughs> what do you want me to do? I mean, we're afraid of people that don't look like us. If I try and build this, will I hurt myself or will it fall apart? Yeah, I think one of the big things here, as you're saying this, I'm kind of stepping into my hiking mode where I'm out hiking around, you know, the area in the valley. And I look at something and I'm not quite sure what it is. And if I'm not sure what it is, then I don't eat it. So maybe it's a function of providing education for people so they can identify it. Well, but they can do that themselves. I mean, there are guidebooks of these plants. There are internet websites. There are, I'm at the farmer's market. I mean, I have, I tell people, well, send me photos of the thing. How hard is that? We have the same challenges of getting people educated and then the motivation behind them so that they actually get motivated to go out and do something about it. You know, Mark, I think it takes a special person, one that's really interested. Maybe I don't say special, but one that's really interested in this. And there are those of us that garden out there and there's those of us that wildcraft out there. And, you know, I think that it will most always be that it's just a small crew doing it. Well, here's the deal. (laughs) These plants that I focus on at the market, these are plants that have been being used. I mean, that's part of the name of one of my businesses, 8,000-year plants. These are plants that have been used by people. Mm -hmm. These are plants that probably have been developed by people. Some of these plants are actually becoming rare because people aren't going out to collect them. For example, there's a plant called Saya, and it's a root. It's a relative in the lipstick tree family, so it's a relative of anato or achiote, if you know the red coloring in Mexican food. This is a root. It'll have the large root, and then it'll have these little tiny root kind of budding off it like little pups. Okay. And one of the things this plant requires is basically that you pull up that big root and in the process you're going to dislodge all those little roots and then you end up with 20 plants instead of one. And when people don't do that, those little roots, they just don't develop. So this is rarer and rarer because people are not out there collecting it. They need us to be out there. A lot of these plants are like that. Wolfberries are an indicator of a population that is no longer here. If you go over to the eastern side of the valley over by the superstition, if you go south down to the Gila River Reservation, there are areas that are so covered with wolfberries, you can't get through them. You're looking at goji berries as far as the eye can see, and every plant is covered with hundreds of them. Well, What that tells me is, in the past, this was an area where there were an awful lot of people living because Mm -hmm. people are the ones that make that sort of distribution happen. Without that, it wouldn't be. We have species here in the valley that should not be here, cannot be here, and yet they are. Well, people brought them. And these are the ones that I'm showing people. This is food. The big, tall palm trees, the Washington palm trees that we have here. We have a kind from Mexico. Those are the really, really tall, skinny ones, but we also have those really fat, thick ones that you find in the old parts of town. Those were brought here a long time ago, and they are food. Those little berries 
taste like Baby Ruth candy bars. Those plants would not be here without our previous intervention. Yeah, the kind of choya that is used for food. There are two different species. Uh, some people call them chodim and hanam. And that, if you look at those plants, you can tell they are so different from the other wild choyas. They have fewer spines. They're larger spaces between the spines. They have to have been developed by the people selecting, oh, I like this one better than this one. Mm-hmm. When I was a little kid, my grandpa, he used to encourage us to bring home some little plants like Mammillaria cacti and Selaginella, Anamopsis. Anamopsis wouldn't be anywhere without people. These plants basically live where people live. They are here because of people, and without people, some of them are actually struggling now. So when you say it's a matter of getting people to go wildcraft, we aren't really wildcrafting here. What we're doing is grabbing a hold of crops that just haven't been treated like crops for a long time. When I say a long time, I only mean like a couple hundred years. (laughs) A couple hundred years, exactly. It would not surprise me if we could get achiote to grow here because saya grows here. And saya is a relative of achiote. The kinds of trees and plants that people can get to grow here without a whole lot of intervention other than, you know, establishments are mind-boggling. It's easy. It really is. The DIY people are the only ones that I see at the market who seem to get this. Mm -hmm. I go out, I grow in confidence every time I find something that is food that I can bring back for my family. I can bring it back and I can grow it. I can help spread it in the wild. I can do these I can do this. Really what we need to do is get people understanding that they also can do it. And don't be so scared. <laughs> we got that message loud and clear, as did I, absolutely. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you learned from it. It's pretty much a daily basis, the failing thing. <laughs> you try stuff and it doesn't work, or you have confidence in somebody and they don't deliver. And it's just kind of a, I don't know, I learned which is basically paths crossed once will we'll cross again. There's going to be a lot of disappointments. There's always small things, big things. I mean, there's just too many to count. You don't let that spoil the wonderful miracle that you're walking through every day. So what do you consider your biggest success? There's a bunch of little kids that are related to me down in Mexico who are now all grown up. And we go to the Gathering of Nations every spring in New Mexico. So they come up. And to see these kids, they're now mentors for the littler kids. Mm. That's pretty successful. Yeah. I learn stuff every day. I teach stuff every day. And for me, that's what success means, to see all that learning in those little kids who are now big kids. They're college age now, some of these kids that I first started bringing up. We're about 200 people now that go to this gathering, all of the group. So it's kind of a con. Why? Thank God for buses with toilets on them. (laughs) No kidding. So what drives you? Memory. My grandpa, he's the one who taught me, he taught my brothers. It's memory. It's the same thing over and over again. It's a wonderful world where we're surrounded by incredible stuff. And you remember where you found something last year. So you go and you see, is it there? Oh, look, it looks different. Look at this. 
Every day you get up and, okay, what's going to happen today? I'm going to walk in the steps of the people that came before me. How am I going to do it today? So that's what I mean by memory. Perfect. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? I'm not sure. I hesitate because my very favorite book has always been, and I've read, it's the only book I've ever read over and over and over again. It's called Ceremony. It's by a lady named Leslie Marlin Silco. She used to be at the University of Arizona in Tucson. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if she's still teaching there or not. And then I had her as a teacher after I had read the book, and it's got a lot of swear words in it, so you have to be ready for that. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it's the book I would recommend for anybody who really wants to consider themselves local to this area. You should read that book. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? I'm still learning stuff. I'm only 61. Yeah, 61 years old. So don't waste the miracle. How about that? Yeah. I love that. I love a lot of the things that you've said over the past five or six minutes about being happy with what we have and really connecting with the beauty of each day. Do you know that Japanese saying about I know what enough is? No. Have you heard that? Uh Uh-uh. Tell me. It's taru shiru. It just means I know what enough is, meaning I'm satisfied. Yeah. And you look at that each day and you say, okay, I've got all these wonderful things. Oh, but now I get to have this additional wonderful thing. Goodness, it's just all over the place. Be happy with what you've got, and we've got a lot. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Mark. Thank you. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? I'm in the process of making a Wix page, but until that thing is up, go ahead and email me. I've got a special email just for this stuff. M as in Mary, A, N as in Nancy, U, J, I, B as in boy, at yahoo.com. You pronounce that Manahib. Manahib at yahoo.com. Perfect. You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash foragers club. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Growing plants that thrive in your yard is a lot easier than you think. It starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text SEEDS to 33444 or visit IWantToSaveSeeds.com and you will receive our free webinar about why seeds matter, why saving them is easy, and how you can save your own. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, Hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago. Then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. 
Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.